Hey, everybody. Lots to talk about, but first and foremost, for a noticeably smooth shave, join Dollar Shave Club today. The Dollar Shave Club starter set includes razors, prep scrub, shave butter, and post-shave dew. By the way, shave butter is not edible. For all for just $9 on your first box. That's right, just $9. And the best part? Your box gets delivered straight to your door with free shipping. See why millions trust Dollar Shave Club for their shaving and grooming needs. Get shaving and grooming products when you need it. Don't wait. Get the ultimate shave starter set from Dollar Shave Club today for just $9. This offer is limited to U.S. residents only. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com slash fwcars. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash fwcars. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 331 of the Fun with Cars Motorsports Podcast, or episode 18 of 2022. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who just got the official U.S. letter that, as an American, he must now like iced tea, Chris Faroche. Hey, Chris. Hey, Robin. No, still don't like iced tea. Uh, nope, that is, it, the, the feds are on their way. Uh, you, you have a... You have five minutes to change your answer. It is Wednesday <laughs> afternoon, June 15th, and Chris and I are going to be talking about the Azerbaijan Grand Prix and touch on the results of the Grand Prix at Road America IndyCar race. We'll dive into the 24 Hours of Le Mans a little bit next week, but quickly, congratulations to Toyota for winning the race for the fifth time in a row. Yep, that's right. They've now won it 2018 through 2022. Fun stuff. But hey, Chris... I bet you have some Formula One news. Yeah, the uh, the driver merry-go-round, or at least the rumours around the merry-go-round, have begun in earnest. So, obviously, we've talked about Daniel Ricciardo's woes in prior Grand Prix. We'll touch on his performance in Baku shortly. But uh, but one man that's being rumoured to be lined up to replace Daniel at McLaren, if in fact he doesn't keep his seat for 23, is none other than Pierre Gasly, which I think would be. Uh, quite a surprise uh, to most people, as he's very much a Red Bull driver, and uh, In- including me, to be blunt about it. <laughs> yeah, I, he's not the most logical uh, name that I would consider as a as a as a partner to obviously Lando Norris and a replacement for Daniel. But that's uh, one one rumor that's circulating. Um, I think a more positive rumor that we could all get behind is the possibility of Oscar Piastri. Um, Joining Williams for 2023, replacing Nicholas Latifi. Wait, what? Oh yeah, Latifi out. Bye bye. One Did uh, Piastri's dad just come up on a billion dollars? <laughs> Did he win a billion dollar lottery? Uh, how how is this happening? Well, Piastri is a Renault driver, uh, or sorry, Alpine driver, uh, Raupine driver. Let's call it that. Anyway, <laughs> um, and obviously they are keen to keep him on their books. Looks like um, Fernando Alonso will re-sign for Alpine. So therefore, they have a problem of how to keep Piastri happy. Um, And so one option is to place him at Williams, which seems to be everyone's favorite team to place drivers they don't know what else to do with. Uh, Hence, (laughs) (laughs) Albon's seat this year for Red Bull. (laughs) So Um, Piastri could be lining up for Williams. They know that Williams is powered by a Mercedes, right? And a Mercedes is not a, a Renault. 
they they do know that um and the mercedes is also not a red bull powertrain either so it's there true. is flexibility there and certainly we all agree uh, even having never watched a lap of piastri's racing that he'll be an upgrade on latifi so uh and latifi's struggles this year have been well documented uh, by everyone including us so that seems like a, a pretty good upgrade. One final tidbit of news is that uh, our ever-expanding F1 calendar may be returning to South Africa for 2023 with Kyle Army no coming kidding. back onto the grid, potentially, if negotiations go well. Um, whether it replaces a race or just makes another race, yeah, we shall find out in due course. Well, uh, the African continent is the last major continent that formula one doesn't go to at the moment is that right i mean they go to north and south america and mm-hmm. central america i mean which is technically part of north america they go to europe of course they go to asia of course they go to australia, australia. Mm-hmm. yeah so it's uh it's africa's is the lone continent not represented by the one formula the formula of one yeah, and it's got a long, Kalami uh, has a long, illustrious racing pedigree, including with Formula One. So it's no stranger to the sport. It's obviously been off the grid for, for some time. Um, and, and they do uh, have a South African world champion in, uh, in uh, oh, well, now his name's escaping me, of course, but it was the Ferrari champion in 1979. Oh, oh my goodness. Jody Schechter. Jody Schechter, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. So um, so that'll be interesting. Um that's the news for this week. Yeah, that's lovely, lovely news. So, Azerbaijan happened. It was quite warm there. And leading up to the race, leading up to the weekend, there was a lot of buzz around Mercedes-Benz and how they clearly fixed their porpoising. They're now the best there in terms of that, and they could be a real threat to the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. Then Friday practice happened, (laughs) and uh, people started scratching their heads. I mean, is there anything about Friday that you want to talk about? Well, I'm just confused by what you've just said, because most of the pundits uh, and expectation around Mercedes was that they would struggle in, in Azerbaijan, because obviously their car hasn't been that quick in a straight line. Uh, compared to Ferrari and Red Bull, and they haven't demonstrated any significant speed and slow corners, uh, as uh, evidenced by their struggles in Monaco. So a lot of um, the expectation was around Mercedes coming good at smoother, faster tracks such as Silverstone. Um, again, it's expected they'll struggle again at, at uh, um, in Montreal this weekend. So uh, I, I wasn't expecting that much from Mercedes's performance in Azerbaijan myself. Uh, I guess what I was largely basing that on uh, one Sam Collins, who who was quite who was quite um, bullish about uh, Mercedes' performance in Azerbaijan, and uh, I thought mistakenly apparently that he was not alone <laughs> in that thinking. <laughs> so um, so I guess what 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 did what did stand out for you on Friday? Well, so. Russell and, and Lewis over the course of the weekend talked about the unacceptable, you know, bouncing, whether that's from porpoising or from their, their stiff ride and lack of compliance in their suspension. Uh, George was saying that he was getting blurred vision, Hamilton suffering with back pain. 
Um, of course, the teams that are at the quick end that have mastered uh, both of those issues, such as uh, Christian Horner's Red Bull team, were saying, well, obviously they're going to complain about that and ask for the FAI to make changes because they're slow um, relative to us. But there were some other drivers up and down the grid that were backing Hamilton and Russell, saying that you know essentially the rules are limiting the solutions that can be developed um, and that there should be some tweaks looked at trying to make it better for, for the drivers. Um, and so this debate, I think, wasn't concluded at the weekend and it'll rumble for some time. Um, but the I, drivers... Are, mm-hmm. I, I just... You specifically mentioned Christian Horner and that is completely reasonable to do so. I have to say, he's really starting to make me, <laughs> like, you know, just look... I'm raising an eyebrow, I think, is the best way to... That's where we're at. And I've got a raised eyebrow at Christian Horner because he's at the same time talking about how obviously we need to completely change the annual budget rules because that's untenable. And then just, you know, crying foul about Mercedes talking about the porpoising issue and how maybe some adjustments to the rules need to be changed. And there is a, there, there is obviously a lot of overlap between, Hey, you had a budget, you knew about it, stick to it. And it's like, hey, it's been in the rules this entire time, fix it. But there is a difference between spending too much money and actually hurting drivers. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there is a fundamental difference in what we're talking about here. And if there's like a real genuine safety concern, that that should be looked at seriously. And uh, I think even at one point Christian Horner was saying, oh, Lewis Hamilton's faking it when he says his back hurts. It's like, come on, man. I mean, seriously. I, I, so, I, like I said, we're, we're, at, we're at a raised eyebrow here with Christian Horner and such tactics. Formula One is, is no stranger to, to remarkable levels of politics and, and, you know, posturing based on mainly self-interest um, as a driver or a race team. Um, and Christian Horner, I think, is probably now one of the leading proponents of of the ability to to say one thing that just sort of defies belief really that you can't imagine that uh, he would even countenance the idea of saying such a preposterous thing but yet um yeah he, yeah he's uh, he's pretty good at it I, i'd say he's taken over the helm from max mosley who used to amaze me with some of the nonsense he used to come out with. <laughs> oh um, christian horner i'm sure that was a role you were desperate <laughs> to take congratulations to you sure <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it's all getting a bit farcical, isn't it? Uh, Lewis was even talking about not not uh, attending the Montreal Grand Prix. You know, one of his favorite tracks, a place where he won his first ever Grand Prix. He's had a yeah. lot of success there, saying that he doesn't expect the Mercedes to be to be great around that circuit this year. Um, look, I think the the, the, the the teams can't help themselves, right? They'll do whatever they think is necessary to try and either get an advantage or, or maintain their advantage. So this is basically something that will have to be done between the drivers uh, with the help of the GPTA and the FIA and, and maybe Ross Braun and his, his technical team. They need to come to some sort of sensible decision here. But the, the expectation is that sooner or later the porpoising or the bouncing is going to cause a massive shunt and then for Formula One will have to react to it. I, I will say this, though, at a minimum... At a minimum, Total Wolf is doing a much better job of feigning authenticity than Christian Horner is. Christian Horner 
is just so he's just he's talking out of both sides of his mouth saying contradictory things if you take one layer off right and and uh, total wolf i think he's doing a better job of uh, uh throwing a veil on that at a minimum and or he's actually being authentic which is i guess you could say my hope as much as anything uh, well i think toto demonstrated his authenticity by describing the mercedes uh um as an S-box. And I think we could all agree um, that it pretty much is at the moment, despite getting third and fourth in the yes. race. <laughs> a box full of S, which is not good for weight or weight distribution or even center of gravity. So, yes. Um, a I whole think bunch of should... S in your face. And sometimes <laughs> that S can hit the fan. I, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Um, qualifying was interesting. Uh, Charles Leclerc demonstrated his mastery over one lap. Um, He's a fast, you know, six fast pole, driver. Jeez. Sixth pole of the season, 15th all-time in Formula One, um, which is, ties him with, uh, with Max Verstappen, which is a fairly good effort. Uh, obviously, we all knew it was going to um, blow up the following day, but um, I thought it was interesting that uh, <laughs> Sergio... Uh, out-qualified backs for the second time in a row. Not often we've said that a teammate of Max's has out-qualified him. Uh, and I mean that was, and that was just that was just pure hustle there. I mean, he just, well, and Sergio was was complaining about the lack of toe. So with that, you know, you you might have got a little bit closer to Charles, like, but he was over to three tenths off. So I'd be surprised if it would have been enough for Paul. But yeah, fine effort by Sergio. Two two races in a row. And you know, Carlos Sainz was there or thereabouts in fourth. You know. Edging, you know, four tenths plus off of his teammate, but you know, they were. Carlos Sainz was nearly a second quicker than George Russell, who put it fifth on the grid. So, you know, Leclerc had <laughs> close enough to a second and a half on the fifth pace qualifier. That's pretty insane. Yeah, poor old Carlos was quick through qualifying until it really mattered. <laughs> He's yeah, still not... I mean, he was ahead of Leclerc, in, in, I think, at Q1 and Q2, or at least Q2. Yeah, and he just seems to be feeling the pressure in those final Q3 runs. Hopefully, he'll uh, he'll, he'll pull himself together here before too long. But, uh, oh, he's Chris, still not sorry, caught. hold on. I just, I have to, I'm taking one last sip of my iced tea, and I really want to savor it. Hold on. Oh. Oh, man, that's so good. All right. Sorry, you were saying. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, um, he probably could have done better. He's, he's the worst of the top four at the moment, I think you would have to say. Um, where but I where think, do Spaniards fall on iced tea? Because I feel like Carlos would benefit from the cool and refreshing and indeed calming nature of a fresh iced tea with a twist of lemon especially. And that might be just that little extra kick of caffeine he needs to really deliver at the end of Q3 as well. I think you'll find that they prefer sangria, which isn't infinitely better. Well, but no, no, argu <laughs> no argument there. But maybe not right before Q3. I mean... Of <laughs> maybe maybe he should take it right before Q3. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe we're going the wrong way. Maybe he needs to calm down a little. Maybe it's not a caffeine issue at all. <laughs> yeah, no, sangria, that, that, uh, yeah, that's, that's a fair point. Um, but, you know, George Russell, again, you know, we talked about Mercedes and the porpoisine, and obviously Russell's car was having that issue as well. But, I mean, man, oh, man, he's literally it's just one strong performance after another 
His new nickname is not Mr. Saturday. It's now Mr. Consistency. So, I mean, obviously, we talked about Latifi earlier. His other esteemed Canadian race driver. Uh, oh, boy. Yes. Lance Stroll had, had a few problems not hitting the wall. And um, <laughs> he obviously caused a lot of problems for everybody in Q1. Uh, when on his second collision, he managed to stop the session. Um, and uh, he basically between him and Alonso caused quite a few drivers basically not to have another shot at a, at a Q1 run. And, and uh, Alexander Albon in particular was particularly furious with Alonso and felt he should have got a penalty <laughs> for his antics. Um, for, and I, for, but that was right. Not for Stroll, for Alonso. For Alonso, yeah. So Alonso was up to the same tricks he was at Monaco. So he went out on another run in Q1 on used tyres and basically wasn't wasn't really trying to, to be on a hard lap at all. In fact, there's a really interesting Julian Palmer analysis on, on F1.com's website where he, he shows the telemetry from Alonso's car, looks at the onboards and talks you through what Alonso was up to. And it, it looks like he was literally just trying to protect you know, his own position um, and stop people setting a quick Q1 time. Uh, and uh, Albon in particular was furious about it. Uh, there were a couple of cars ahead of Alonso, so they were unaffected, but there was a whole cluster that, uh, that couldn't hang back because there was so little time left in the session. So they basically all had to follow him. But Alonso was breaking early, uh, spending a lot of time looking in his mirrors, and then it looks like he just feigned the incident to go down the escape road in order to cause the, the waved yellows, which would then obviously prevent anyone setting a quick time. Now, he wasn't penalised for it, um, but but ultimately it did look like a fairly dirty you know dirty trick and and it just shows that he's still at the top of his game Alonso he's he's right up there for, yeah. uh, just pulling all these marginal gains right finding every every little stone uh, is not unturned in his quest to just disrupt and and put off his opponents. <laughs> you have to admit that at least a certain level you you have to admire the strategic nature of it and how in intelligent he really is to be thinking on all these levels like man i'm not feeling 100 percent uh confident in my qualifying time on its own merit but i am going to move up as things stand right now and i think i can keep it that way uh you know but that required a lot of specific circumstances to line up and they did line up and he saw it and he took advantage of it i mean the core of it correct me if i'm in remembering this incorrectly but you know stroll <laughs> it was very much a it was like he had that like he had that incident and he seemed to more or less get away with it and i just i just imagine this like hovering god in the clouds going now lance have you learned your lesson and lance being like nope and <laughs> <laughs> hold my beer and then just goes and does it right again like i i just it was two mistakes in quick succession that really threw me off with Stroll's uh, moves. And that is yeah. what gave Alonso the circumstance, the time and the circumstances to pull the move he pulled. Right, exactly right. I, I think Stroll is becoming more of an, an enigma to me because he has performed well in the past and he has performed at Baku in particular uh, very well in previous races. Um, but he had a really lamentable weekend. Um, it was interesting that one pundit uh, was saying that maybe it's time for his dad to start thinking about pushing him to one side. Um, 
uh, and uh, and putting a you know a, a decent racing driver in the second Aston Martin. I don't I don't see that happening anytime soon. To be honest with you, I think that's Stroll's seat for as long as he wants to keep punishing himself. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I do hope he finds some of his form again soon because he's really like like Latifi having a pretty awful. 2022 um and um you know he's he has been quick in the past um for for aston martin for racing point for for williams even so you know we know he can do it uh when the stars align he just needs to do it you know more frequently so yeah. uh yeah those were my thoughts on 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 the lead up to the race well it, they're all interesting thoughts chris but i have a question for you hmm do you understand how important it is to keep yourself clean? And when I say clean, I mean from head to toe and everywhere in between. And for guys, there's some important parts right in the middle that really deserve more care than a bar of soap. For this critical cleaning and grooming, the folks at Ballsy are here to help. A one-stop shop for all your fiddly bits. Ballsy carries trimmers, as well as aptly named ball wash, sack spray, and more. And worry not, Ballsy is made from the good stuff. Essential oils and plant extracts, no sulfates, parabens, synthetic dyes, and of course, no testing on animals. And it's made right here. All Ballsy personal care products are proudly produced in the USA and always will be. It's right up there with iced tea, Chris. But perhaps you're not sure where to start. All good, because all you need to do is go to ballwash.com, scroll down, and take the quiz and get a customized system tailored to your personal needs. Chris, I'm not going to ask you, but now you know. Or just grab what's called the Sack Pack, a trifecta of products to keep it all neat and tidy. Doesn't matter if you're shopping for yourself or an unkempt loved one, because Ballsy also sells a wide variety of gift sets to fit your needs and budget. With over 200,000 satisfied customers and a 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got to give Ballsy a try. And I got to tell you, I tried and loved the two-headed trimmer from Ballsy, and I also have to admit, it's kind of fun to have products cater to my quite private privates. It's, it's fun. It's fun, Chris, is the point. So what you should do and everyone else is to join in on that fun and go to ballwash.com slash FWCars and put in promo code FWCars. You'll receive 20% off your order of $50 or more. That's 20% off when you go to ballwash.com slash FWCARS and put in the promo code FWCARS. Chris, you're welcome. Okay, uh, so let's talk about the race, shall we? Yep. I mean, if you want to. It seems seems a little silly after all that fun. But yes, we had a race on Sunday with very interesting conditions. A lot of, just so you were saying, politicking and drama leading up to it. You know, these question marks about who's really the number two driver in what category, when we ultimately all know the answer to these things. But I... <sighs> I, I I can't help but start with Ferrari's woes, man. They're 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 getting quite serious. Well, that's that's really the only story from this race, isn't it? I mean, once again, Ferrari demonstrated good pace, um, and uh, and they literally it all blew up in their faces. I mean, not only did Carlos um, have an early DNF, we then had Charles have his second blow up in three races, um, and then other <laughs> While teams leading comfortably. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. After, actually, Ferrari make a good decision on pit stop strategy, which may have set them up for the win, uh, that the PU then goes and, and fails on him. And uh, to, to cap that, you know, we then had uh, some of the customers um, struggling. So Magnussen had a, a power unit failure. And uh, Zhao had a, had a technical issue that was blamed on cooling, but could also just be another power unit failure. I think there were, they haven't there been were five transparent DNFs. enough. Yeah. There were five DNF, Chris. Four out of um, five were Ferrari-powered. And then, so in Monaco, uh, there were three MGUK failures with Ferrari power units between uh, Haas and Aston uh, and uh, Alfa Romeo. And then, of course, uh, we had Leclerc's PU failure in Spain. Um, so... An utter disaster. I mean, after looking so good at the start of the season, um, coming out of uh, testing, looking really reliable, um, getting some good results when Red Bull was struggling with their reliability, it has completely turned around. And now you have to question whether or not they have any hopes at all in either championship if this is going to continue. Yeah, no, I, it, it has been that stark of a, of a change in momentum. You're absolutely right about that. And it is... It's more than anything. It's just surprising. You know, it seemed like Ferrari really had built a strong, solid foundation of a car. But now you're starting to question if that's really the case. It always struck me as being quite remarkable that Ferrari had managed to come back so strongly after their after their, you know, recent history with the power units. You know, obviously they had the the, the super most powerful uh, F1 engines on the grid a couple of years ago, but were found to be doing that illegally. Uh, so then they had a couple of lamentable seasons where they were nowhere in, on straight line performance. And then all of a sudden for this year, they seem to have solved every, all their problems. They, they'd come up with a, with a, a rule-abiding uh, engine that was suddenly reliable and as powerful as anything else out there. And, uh, and they'd done it over quite a short time frame. It, it did seem a little bit remarkable, and, and so it has turned out that <laughs> they haven't quite cracked it, that they've got some fundamental problems with their power unit. And, uh, you know, Bonotto is saying that these aren't going to be quick fixes, uh, that, that essentially the, this is a medium to long-term issue. And so not only do we have the problem that there may be more failures coming up, but then they're going to be hit with, with you know, quite a lot of grid penalties as they have to keep replacing parts beyond the, the maximum that they're allowed in a season. And Charles exactly is already, right. at that po- already at that point. So it just looks like a bit of a catastrophe that Ferrari are so close to really competing again um, at the front, um, and you know, pushing on for one of the championships or both, and now it's just uh, it's just completely fallen apart. Now it looks like Red Bull's title to lose, right? It looks done and dusted, honestly. Well, the, so the highest finishing Ferrari-powered car was indeed Valtteri Bottas, and that was outside of the points. He finished eleventh in his Alfa Romeo, so right. and a lap down, and so yeah, that that was it. after qualifying first and fourth and Carlos showing strong race pace as well um, you know in earlier practice and things that was a drastic turn of events and yeah obviously because things change so drastically in just a few Grand Prix time they can change drastically again but yeah they've definitely put themselves they've given themselves quite a handicap to overcome and I think it's worth just taking a quick look at the constructor standings as a result. I want to talk more about the race, but um, Red Bull Racing, 
279 points. Ferrari, 199. Mercedes, 161. Not much more, not much more than a race uh, level of points um, behind Ferrari. And think about the on-track performance of the Mercedes versus the on-track performance of the Ferrari. It's just kind of kind of crazy. It is, and and to to add to that, you've now got both Red Bull drivers leading the drivers' championship. So it's essentially a Verstappen versus Perez battle now. Um, yeah, twenty-one points between the two, and then yeah. Leclerc is another thirteen behind Sergio. Uh, so, and only seventeen ahead of Russell. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah, and Carlos Carlos Sainz is behind Russell in the championship. Carlos Sainz is uh, the meat in a Russell Hamilton sandwich right now, and uh, it's it's kind of a shocking thing to say. You know, it, I'm very surprised that I'm saying that. Here's the thing, right? Charles really, in the last three Grand Prix, should have scored something like 63 points more than he did because he probably would have won the Spanish Grand Prix. He may have won, you know, in Azerbaijan, and he should have won Monaco, really, if they hadn't loused up the the tactics. Um, So that would be around a 63-point improvement on his current championship standing, in which case he'd still look pretty... Pretty comfortable at the head of the, at the of the table, right? With uh, that would put him on 179 points. And uh, obviously, the race if, win. if mm-hmm. he scored those points, Verstappen couldn't have. So yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So the he'd, he'd probably have a, like a race worth of points lead at least. So um, yeah, it's, I feel really bad for Charles, honestly, and and to some degree the Ferrari team because. I think everyone was pretty happy that they were back um, at the front and, and had done a good job with the new rules and, and were competitive again. And Charles is a, is a class act. He's a you know, supremely quick driver, very, you know, very nice guy and, you know, was, was uh, reaping the benefits of having a, a good car again. And, and for it to just go so badly wrong so quickly into the season, I mean, we're not even halfway through the championship yet. Yeah. Uh, just it's um, yeah, it's not great at all. I mean, can it be recovered? Of course, it can. Ferrari could could solve their problems and have you know, perfect reliability for the rest of the season and get back into the fight. But right now, you know, two blow ups in three races that that really bodes, you know, not very well, does it, for their reliability prospects going well, forward? And when they were leading the race comfortably, yeah, this wasn't yeah. a force to run the engine hotter than ideal. No, they were in positions where they could be managing their equipment, and in those conditions, that's when these happened. Yeah, it's uh, it's um, it's not great for for fans of Ferrari and and the team. They uh, and and really for anyone in you know that's not a Max Verstappen and a Red Bull fan, because ultimately, I think we're all looking forward to having another great title fight between uh, two good drivers. In, in this case, it would be Max and Charles. Um, and it looked like it was going to be a really good season. And now it, it could quickly dwindle into just an inter-team battle between Verstappen and Perez, which you know I think I would happily bet the value of my house on Verstappen winning that one. Um, I think if it's not team order supplied, I think we all believe that Max probably has a little bit more in his pocket than, than Sergio. Um, and, you know, I remember the old old Red Bull domination days where Weber and Vettel used to theoretically fight it out, but we all knew Vettel was the, you know, the favoured son. So uh, I don't really fancy revisiting that, but it now looks like our fate for 2022. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's incorrect, but we, we don't know that yet. Um, 
All right. I want to talk a bit about Mercedes and the massive, let's call it a bouncing issue. I guess it's not 100% certain if it was pure porpoising or, as you said, a, a symptom of extremely stiff suspension. But how did we have such encouraging results in Spain and then this in Azerbaijan? It's just the nature of the track. So, you know, it's a street course. It's not a, it's not a smooth track. So the Mercedes doesn't like bounce, you know, it doesn't like bumps. It doesn't like undulations. It likes smooth, smooth track surfaces. So, you know, in Spain, we had a purpose-built racetrack uh, that's exceptionally smooth. And, and Mercedes were able to get on top of their porpoising issues with their latest upgrades and and could get away with the lack of compliance of their suspension. So until we go back to a track that is, again, you know, a, a top quality permanent race circuit, somewhere like Silverstone, they're going to continue to struggle. They basically had two problems to solve. One was the porpoising, and second now is, is their suspension. And uh, they certainly haven't solved that one. And to be fair to them... I know that in the rules this season, and I don't remember all the technical details, but there were some some parts of the suspension system that were outlawed, and so they they were probably the masters of the suspension uh, systems in the under the old rules, and, and they've they've got to develop a new solution for this season, and and they clearly uh, are behind some of their rivals like Red Bull and, and Ferrari at the moment. Do you think there's I mean, how how much legitimacy do you want to give the claims that these cars are just fundamentally unsafe for the driver's health um, with the porpoising? Because I'm forced to remind everybody that um, indie cars are now uh, floor-driven downforce cars as well. And this is not an issue in IndyCar. Now, there's a huge difference. It's effectively a spec chassis. It's a Dallara under the Indy cars. But my point is that cars with floor wings can be built without this porpoising issue. That's right. But I think the, the what the F1 teams are saying is that it's inherent in the rules that you could you could develop underfloor tunnels that um, if 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 you could go outside of the regulations wouldn't have this porpoising effect. Um, but the the rules basically limit their ability to to develop countermeasures to to this current phenomenon. That's and why they're, it, they're saying it has to come with a with a rule change. And those countermeasures is the is the are the rules there because they think the countermeasures would effectively mean too much downforce for the Formula One cars. Yeah, I don't think I can answer that definitively. That's something we may have to cover at another time. But but I think. You know the, the the regulations detail in in you know great detail exactly the dimensions of the underfloor tunnels, you know where they start, where they finish, the maximum you know section sizes, um, and so that's that's part of part of the related to part of the issue. Now, again, you know it's all very sensitive to the, the overall philosophy of the car. Um, how you've how you've distributed the weight uh, along the car. So, for example, there's a lot of different strategies around uh, gearbox layout, uh, wheelbase, center of mass, um, and you know do, do, what, the ride height you want to run, and and so on and so forth. And, and you could argue that there are teams that have found a better compromise 
um, and better performance than Mercedes. And that's where you know people like Christian Horner say, well, you just got to go and do a better job rather than asking for the rules to be changed. And you know there is there is something to that. But ultimately, um, I will say that it's very hard to, to to buy into the fact that these cars can't be driven when both Russell and Hamilton didn't really do it that bad a job on Sunday. You know, Russell finished on the podium. Hamilton was able to race with his car and beat Pierre Gasly to fourth place. So even though the car is clearly difficult and clearly painful to drive, they're still doing a fairly respectable job with it. So, um, and on Sunday, it was the second quickest car in, in the field. So it, it does still feel, you know, six of one, half a dozen the other. But I think it, the people who develop these rules who you know, people like Ross Braun, who are very experienced, should be able to understand fundamentally whether or not there is something in the regulation that needs to be tweaked or not. And they'll, they'll have plenty of data and plenty of information from all 10 teams, and they should be able to make a fairly good impartial decision. And we'll have to see what that is in due course. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I have a hard time not seeing a couple of fairly simple answers, which is just, you know, have some kind of third thing, like be it a, a spring or just like a jounce bumper of sorts that you that lowers onto that spring and then it just cannot go any further than that and the FIA can make that minimum a touch on the high side so that downforce isn't terribly high you know what i mean that downforce is regulated that you are not getting an extra 2000 pounds of downforce because you're riding a couple mil- millimeters lower than anybody else but um, again, just as you suggested, it's way more nuanced and complicated than why don't they just, you know, put the shim right here. So, um, uh, you know, but it'll be interesting to see how this develops because there is a solution out there. And it, I feel like once again, Formula One is making this more complicated than it needs to. So be interesting to see how the situation resolves itself. Um, I do want to touch briefly on... Uh, Sergio Perez's performance. He out-qualified Verstappen, as we talked about. But then in the race, two things happened. One, he clearly did not have the same race pace as Verstappen did, at least in the middle stint. And two, they were quite adamant about not fighting Verstappen at all when it came to a pass for the lead and that kind of thing. Where, where do you, where do you look at Perez and his? increased pace and uh, yet the still fairly obvious team hierarchy. Yeah, so he did a good job in qualifying. He did a great job at the start to get the lead. Um, what he needed to do then is clear off, right? And he needed to to take advantage of Leclerc being between him and Max to try and get a big enough lead that it, it wouldn't have been possible to switch them or, or convenient to switch them. But of course, the Ferrari and reliability sort of went against him and then as you said uh, Max clearly had better pace which is you know one of Sergio's great uh, abilities is is to maximize the life of the tire and maintain good race pace um, and that's how you know he won his first Grand Prix but for whatever reason um, that deserted him so I, I he's definitely getting there isn't he he's getting closer and closer um, after his I thought fairly daft complaints in Spain where he felt he should have been given the chance to win when he clearly didn't have the pace in Spain. He said he seems to have upped his game. He was, he was really good in Monaco. You could argue quicker than Verstappen all weekend. 
and he was quicker than Verstappen at, at parts of the weekend in, in Azerbaijan. And, and if he keeps doing that and keeps getting quicker and keeps being setting the ultimate pace for Red Bull, and if they're both leading the championship, there seems to be no reason why you don't let them have a fair fight for the balance of the championship. And I hope that's where we get to. Uh, because otherwise, you know, if we end up in a situation where Ferrari can continue to not finish and these two are romping away with the title, to have, you know, orchestrated results where Verstappen always wins would be really dull and would be very reminiscent of the bad days of Schumacher and Ferrari uh, when his teammate wasn't allowed to win, uh, which was mostly Rubens Barrichello at the time. And that was that was pretty turgid F1 days, to be honest. Um, so I, I really hope we don't go there. Was... Daniel Ricciardo's performance good enough for the McLaren this weekend. He did finish yeah. higher than Norris. Um, that was kind of sort of forced upon Norris. But earlier in the Grand Prix, Daniel Ricciardo was uh, giving way to Norris, you know, not being told not to force the issue with Norris to try to protect his position. And that obviously fell flat. Uh, I don't know. What did you think? Was Daniel Ricciardo quick enough? Yeah, I think Daniel had a much better weekend in Baku. Uh, he was pretty close and on, on Norris's pace in quality, wasn't he? And then in the race, you know, they, they seemed to to be quick at different parts of, of the race. Um, and there was there was certainly some, some team management there because Norris was trying to get uh, Alonso. Um, but uh, neither McLaren seemed to be quite on on the Alpine's ultimate pace or, or Aston Martin's or Alfa Tauri's for that matter. So you'd have, you'd have to say that, yeah, Daniel did a good job. The, qu- the question is, can he do it two races in a row in a row? Can he be quick in Montreal as well? I mean, that's been his issue. I mean, we, you know, we, he won in Monza last year, right? We know um, even throughout his difficult first season at, at McLaren, he was able to achieve a race win. And so on, t- on occasions he could be, he could be there, but he can't seem to do it consistently. Yeah, much much stronger signs of signs of promise for Daniel, and uh, so that's good. So we have to just see how he goes uh, goes in in Canada this weekend. Yeah, well, it it was an interesting race, and it is fascinating that they are going from the Middle East to Canada in just one weekend's time. Um, that is uh, that is a big shift in um, in a lot of things, uh, time zones, not least among them. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, how everyone feels, uh, especially, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, Lewis Hamilton, who really struggled to get out of the car. And, um, you know, if that was all performance art, well, it was, it was, uh, it was convincing and, or a bit overly done. It'd be better to be more subtle about it. But, um, we also had an Indy car race. It was at my favorite racetrack in the United States, Road America. Road America is just a wonderful, wonderful place with tons of elevation change, mega fast corners, and just a lot of beautiful scenery. And it seemed like Rossi was really building on the momentum. You know, he finished second in Detroit and then goes ahead and puts it on pole at Road America and seemed to be really good for race pace as well. Um, A lot of people were talking about how impressed he, he was with pace on the black tires, not the optional red tires. But um, it, as the race went on, it proved to be not so straightforward for Rossi. And uh, it ended up being Joseph Newgarden taking, um, taking the race lead after the first cycle of pit stops. 
and ultimately hanging on to it. But um, there were some interesting things that happened early on in the race. You know, the first couple laps of the race were basically under yellow because of some early incidents. And, um, you know, Marcus Erickson had some issues with um, Alex Palau. And then uh, Di Francesco was kind of running into everybody. Um, so uh, is there, are there any uh, highlights of the IndyCar race that you want to mention? Well, I, that collision between Palau and Erickson was interesting, wasn't it? Because uh, Palau, I think, commented that he was surprised to see his teammate alongside him. I don't really know why that's relevant. Because looking at the crash, you know, from my perspective... Ericsson is a, did a, a perfectly legitimate, nice pass on, on his teammate, and um, and Palau just still steers into him. So you know Ericsson's almost fully past him, and yet Palau tries to you know turn in and, and uh, doesn't doesn't modify his line and and was his own undoing. I mean he was he was the master of his own downfall. He just needed to give Ericsson the space he needed to, com- to, to complete the move. I, I don't understand what, what, he's di- what he's thinking there. It was totally Palau's fault, in my opinion. Yeah, I I'm, I'm, I'm almost agree with you. I think, the diff- I think that Ericsson initiated the pass a little bit late, so I think they, they were into breaking already, and it was kind of a late move into the inside. But you're right. By the time they were at the apex, uh, uh, Ericsson was more than alongside. I think he was a nose ahead at that point. And so... It it's it seems very reasonable for Palau to take take out a bit of steering lock and just you know give up the corner and carry on. And I, I'm with you there. I mean, Ericsson's in in with the cont- good contention for the championship, right? So he's he's going to get his his elbows out, even with his own teammate, uh, in order to to keep. Uh, to keep at the top of the table. So uh, I think Palau needs to recognise that fact. Times have moved on from last year. Um, poor old Rossi, though. He, uh, so he was a little undone by, by the Penske pit crew doing a better job uh, for Newgarden uh, than his pit crew did for him, uh, which, which lost him the lead. And then he, he sort of got, I don't know if he sort of fell asleep during the final caution period because he got mugged by Ericsson on the restart, didn't he? yeah. Um, and so, yeah, Rossi ended up third, which, you know, for, for a good chunk of the race, looked like he could convert his pole into a win. Uh, but he's very close, isn't he? Rossi certainly come good the last couple of races, and uh, hopefully this, this strong form continues. Exactly. And thank goodness he was seeing some perspective, seeing it in context. You know, he'd gone from kind of, you know, the first part of the season was proving to be a bit on the lackluster side again, and yet he's really been able to turn a corner, you know, fighting, you know, fighting for the win in Detroit, finishing second, starting on pole and finishing on the podium at Road America. So he, he's really he's gotten himself back into the front. And it was Penske, Ganassi and Dreddy on the podium for the podium. So, you know, there there were a lot of positives to take away from that. And uh you know, so I, I was really glad that he was able to see that perspective. He definitely wants to get another W under his belt so that he can finally get rid of this non-winning race, uh, non-winning race streak. But, you know, I think that there's a lot of positives to take. And, you know, they're going to another track where I expect Rossi to be strong. Their next race is going to be Mid-Ohio, which is another fantastic U.S. racetrack. 
Yes, it is. I, I while watching the race, I, I did lament the fact that there's no discussion whatsoever to try and take Formula One there instead of, say, Vegas. I mean, what a what a great spectacle that would be to have uh, F1 cars running around uh, either track, Road America or Mid Ohio, for that matter. But you know, this is uh, you know, I've I've been able to talk with a darn decent number of former Formula One drivers now, and it's rock solid, consistent across the board. United States racetracks are better because they are quote unquote old school. And, you know, the modern, the modern requirements of formula one negate anything even close to a road America, uh, being on their calendar. And if somehow they did make an agreement to go to road America, they would probably ruin road America. In the process of getting it up to code for, for I mean, you know, it's it's the same. I mean, all the guys love going to Watkins Glen. Formula One won't go to the Glen. So, you know, it's it's sad. It's sad that it's the case. Well, you know, Spa is still a pretty fantastic track, and that's uh, that meets modern Formula One criteria. So That little rinky-dink Mickey Mouse track <laughs> where they just serve chocolate on the sides? Are you kidding me? Man, what is that, a bus route? No. They serve mayonnaise I, with their French fries. You'd love it, Robert. <laughs> I thought you were going to say they serve mayonnaise with their chocolate. Um, no, uh, no. All kidding aside, I absolutely Spa is one of my favorite tracks in the world, and uh, I, I absolutely love Spa. But you know, Spa to a certain extent's kind of grandfathered in, and they have paved quite a lot of Spa to try to keep keep uh, Formula One from getting too anxious to go elsewhere. You know, because, you know, I'm, I'm sure the Belgians do not bring Middle East money for their track. So, you know, it's well, it's a dying breed, to be I blunt could, about it. I could tell you, as, as a very happy individual that's raced at both Spa and at Road America, they're both fantastic tracks. And I've raced at Mid-Ohio, too. So they're all great yes. tracks. I re- yes. strongly recommend anyone listening to go and race at all of those tracks. You'll I, I mean, truthfully, fun. though, I, and it's you know, I've been to both. I've raced at Road America. I've not raced at Spa. I did race the the Spa go kart track, but I, I don't think that counts. Um, <laughs> the, um, <laughs> but the I, I Road America is kind of the United States Spa. Spa is. Ultimately, better. It's bigger. The corners are a bit more uh, complicated and varied, and uh, the elevation change at Spa is unrivaled, except for say the Nordschleife. Um, but Road America has lots of elevation change. Very these corners, they're all fairly simple on paper, but they actually have a lot of nuance to really go quickly. And then you have some beautiful characteristics like. The carousel and the kink and those types of things. Yeah, I guess uh, where would you place Laguna Seca then? Because Laguna Seca with the corkscrew is is probably that's probably the most iconic corner of any racetrack in the United States, isn't it? And um, you know, it's a very different challenge between Rouge and uh, and the corkscrew, uh, but it's it's still you know when I think of really iconic turns at racetracks, those are two that very quickly come to mind as well as somewhere like Paddock Hill Bend at Brands Hatch. Um, with Road America, it is, it is just a, it's a very fast sweeping sort of racetrack, isn't it? It's, um, and that's, I guess, where, where your analogy to, to Spa comes from. But it doesn't, it doesn't really have a, an Eau Rouge, does it, or a Radion? 
No, no, it does or not have that. I mean, for that matter. What, sure. I mean, the carousel, the carousel is close though, because you know, indie cars are not quite flat around the carousel, but they're dancing and they're close. Um, and uh, you know, the kink is comfortably flat in a in a proper formula car, but for a lot of sports car racing, it's not. So it, it depends on the category a little bit more. And mm-hmm. uh, you're right in a general sense that uh, it's it's the high-speed nature uh, of the two tracks and the elevation. But more so than that, you know, uh, uh, Spa is kind of nestled into the Belgian forest. And uh, Road America is more or less nestled into the Wisconsin forest. And, and, uh, and cheese. And cheese. <laughs> and it's good cheese and brats. So do you want French fries with mayonnaise or do you want uh, brats and cheese? You know, so that's what I'm saying. Like, there's more similarities culturally than when you when you peel off there. Obviously, the Wisconsinians and the Belgians have a couple of differences culturally. But like, you know, and they both like beer, I'm pretty sure. So anyway, we've got uh, some great racing coming up. Uh, Mid-Ohio, that's July 3rd for IndyCar, as I mentioned. Just a few days, and we have the Canadian Grand Prix. That, in, in terms, not in terms of the racetrack alone, it's not like the racetrack's epic, but the venue and the way that Montreal just holistically welcomes Formula One, that makes it a, a favorite for me on the Formula One calendar. And speaking of these kind of tracks, it is IMSA that is going to perform the six hours endurance race at the Watkins Glen track. So six hours at the Glen, and that's coming the end of June, June 26th. So um, that's the racing we have coming up. And again, that's all kind of boring compared to my latest YouTube video. And this one's a fun one for me because it is a proper sports car and a low-cost proper sports car, you know, in relative terms anyway. It is the 2022 second-generation Subaru BRZ, updated in critically important ways to make it really just such a wonderful gem of a car to drive, even though, despite the fact that my particular test car was, in fact, an automatic and not a six-speed manual, huh, well, yeah, that's, that's frustrating. Hopefully, I will get into a manual before too long, but... That is my latest YouTube video, and I please desperately 100% hope that you'll check it out because that was a fun one to make. Did you uh, notice a lot of updates from the, the first generation? Oh, yeah, for sure. The, the chassis is much, much stiffer. It's 50% stiffer torsionally. Um, it's got a huge, hugely improved engine. Uh, they went from a 2-liter flat 4 to a 2.4-liter flat 4, and in doing so took a big increase in peak torque. Torque went up to 184 pound-feet, and critically, torque peak dropped from over 6,000 RPM. So the torque peak was above 6,000 RPM in the first-generation BRZ. Now the torque peaks at 3,700 RPM. Oh, so you wow, have a yeah. much healthier, much broader mid-range than before. And then horsepower has gone up as well. It's now 228 instead of 200. So big, big improvements there. Oh, I'm sorry, 200, 205. Yeah, ma- massive improvements in power. They kept the weight down, so the weight the car is some it's the car is less than fifty pounds heavier than the first generation. So weight to power is hugely improved, and uh, the the linearity and the buildup of power is much much improved. It's still naturally aspirated, so yeah, it's just a wonderful and the balance of the car that didn't change. The balance of the car is still fantastic. Cool, sounds good. Yeah, absolutely. 
But for now, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. And please, please, please do check out those ads. If you have any kind of interest or need for those things, um, going to our ads and putting in the promo codes and all that, that does genuinely help me out tremendously. Oh, Chris, you pulled it off again. I really hope you enjoy your iced tea. <laughs> Thank you, Robin. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye.